0: Hello everyone, this is Chris Miller, your co-host of your absolute favorite podcast of all time, Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. Uh, Today we just want to ask you, if you're enjoying it, to subscribe to our Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can get exclusive content, and you can help out Rob and Chris do all the things you love so well. Remember to hold fast and enjoy the show.
1: So, last week, we covered a specific piece of subject matter that resonated with a lot of people, and I'm not talking about the episode as a whole, uh, Hellfire Club Part 2, I highly recommend you go listen to it if you haven't already, but there was a piece of that, and that was Chris playing a game... And everybody wants a piece of Chris. Well, no, Chris playing a game of uh, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, and... uh, the subject matter was six degrees of Kevin Bacon, from Kevin Bacon to Alistair Crowley's butthole.
0: This is the kind of the kind of highbrow experience that you can only truly get yeah. from your friends at Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. This is the hard-hitting fact-finding mission that we are on. And they said journalism's dead. It, <laughs> it
1: Well, it is in print and we're an audio medium, so.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so
1: I had a variation. Um, if if you didn't listen to the episode, Chris did successfully complete uh, six degrees of Kevin Bacon. Uh, it, but just my, a,
0: a matter of moments.
1: Yes, yes, he did it while we were while we were doing the episode. It was pretty remarkable, and I was I was thoroughly impressed and slightly aroused. And uh, I I had actually had my own variation, and I, I didn't quite lay it out in the episode. And I have been it's been requested. ...by a friend that I lay it out here. So I give you... Rob North, man of the people. (laughs) Six degrees of Kevin Bacon to Aleister Crowley's butthole. We have Kevin Bacon, who was in A Few Good Men with Tom Cruise. So you still going on the cruise route. Begins much like yours did. Actually, quite a bit of this is the same as yours. Now, Tom Cruise belongs to the Church of Scientology, which was founded by a man named L. Ron Hubbard... Uh, now this is where I deviate L. Ron Hubbard when he was living in LA after the second world war became buddy buddy with a guy by the name of Jack Parsons who was a a rocket scientist he founded the uh,
0: so you did find out he founded the
1: yeah he founded the JPL he (laughs) founded yeah the Jet Propulsion Laboratory (laughs) Uh, Jack Parsons in the late 30s (laughs) was actually a member of the Church of Thelema and was a protege of Aleister Crowley and Aleister Crowley had himself a butthole, a juicy bee hole, juicy bee hole, power, true power bottom bee hole. So, yeah, there's my variation on it. Uh, To anyone who needed to hear that, you're welcome.
0: If anybody else has one, uh, feel free to email them to us at podcasttrr at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you.
1: Please do. We'd love to hear all the variations of Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon with Aleister Crowley's butt I'm here for it.
0: I'm 100% here for it.
1: So, yeah, now that we've got that out of the way, welcome back to Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. My name's Rob North.
0: And I'm your co-host, Chris Miller.
1: And today, we are switching gears. We're getting away from a whole bunch of... buttholes. (laughs) buttholes. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, <laughs> we're switching gears. We're going a little bit more regal. We're t- uh, today we're talking about Elizabeth the First, the Pirate Queen, or as I like to call her, Bucko Lizzie, Bucko Louie, that's a shout out to you.
0: Bucca Louie. Oh, Miss Queen. <laughs>
1: So, England's Queen Elizabeth I was much more than somebody uh, who just had a fancy dress and a tiara. She set England on the path to empire and stared down much larger and wealthier enemies to carve out claims and territories in the New World, launch serious explorative efforts, and turn her kingdom into a true world power. And she did it with one particularly special card in her deck, Pirates. Pirates. Elizabeth made special those use were, those of Those
0: were Elizabethan pirates.
1: Elizabethan pirates, yeah.
0: <laughs> which, I mean, they got their own name, which is pretty sweet. Yeah. like this, She was so into using pirates to achieve her ends mm-hmm. that they were their own specific offset yep. of pirates. Like, whenever you're talking about these names, they're Elizabethan pirates. Yep. And
1: that's just super cool. And Elizabeth made special use of her so-called sea dogs more than any other monarch, and cemented the legend of both herself and these sailors in this way. Now, our story today isn't going to be a biographical one, even though it does feature some very interesting and downright legendary characters. Uh, You will get these biographical stories of men like Francis Drake, Walter Raleigh, and John Hawkins in later episodes down the road. We have them on our to-do list. They are coming down.
0: The Hawkins one's a little bit cringy. It
1: it, we'll, it is we'll a talk little bit. About it. Like we'll, we'll, yeah. We will discuss him. Now, our goal today is also not to do a biography of Elizabeth the First. What we're here to do today is tell the story of how she, more than anyone else, used pirates and privateers not only to defend her country but also to expand its holdings and power. Now, before we begin, as a quick aside, some of our topic today will be involving a very sensitive subject that of slavery.
0: Yeah. So there's there's a trigger warning here. Uh, There was a lot of slave trading going on at this time. Mm -hmm. This is a big part of the triangle trade. It is. um, Specifically where Hawkins is involved. Yeah, now
1: we, we, of course, we don't complain, condone slavery. We find the practice abhorrent. We don't wish to dishonor those who are subjugated under this terrible system. However, it does play a role in our story, and we believe in telling all parts of the story, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we don't think it does anybody any favors to sanitize the past. And while the story we tell today is of a remarkable series of events, it's not our intent to glorify a terrible institution that happened to play a crucial role in that story. So, with that out of the way, I'd like to get to the sources of today's episode. Uh, We have two primary sources. Uh, The Pirate Queen, Elizabeth I her Pirate Adventurers and the Dawn of Empire by Susan Ronald. And we also have Elizabeth's Sea Dogs by Hugh Beshaino. Uh, both of these books are excellent sources of information. I highly recommend both of them to anyone who's a fan of naval history. The Pirate Queen is a little dry and clunky in its storytelling, but Elizabeth Sea Dogs is a particularly well-written book. I highly enjoyed reading it. So, shall we begin?
0: Let's let's go for it.
1: All right. I want to start by looking at the world that Elizabeth I inherited when she was crowned Queen of England on September uh, on sorry November seventeenth, fifteen fifty eight. Now, she found herself at the top of a country in a ruling class that was completely on the back foot. England, if not most of Europe, had spent four decades in the throes of the Protestant Reformation, and both Protestants and Catholics are now at each other's throats. England has just come off the schism of the Church of England from the Vatican under Elizabeth's father, Henry VIII, and has suffered the ups and downs of a rapid succession of monarchs, including her half-brother Edward VI, her cousin Lady Jane Grey, and her sister, the staunchly Catholic Mary, who reignited outbursts of violence by burning over 300 Protestants at the stake and earning herself the nickname, Bloody Mary. Elizabeth is young. She's only 25. She's an unmarried woman in a role that was traditionally uh, a man's role. She's in the men's world of the royal court. And England is also on the back foot strategically. Over the course of the previous two centuries, she lost all of her holdings in France. She was dealing with constant border skirmishes with the Kingdom of Scotland to the north. And she was barely holding on to her one piece of imperial holdings, the territory controlled in Ireland. Now, England doesn't have the resources or the income to support a large military force, it hasn't had a military, a significant military victory since defeating the Scots at Flodden 45 years before, and it's surrounded by countries that do have the wealth to put large armies into the field. Let's start with France. Now, France defeated England a century earlier to end the Hundred Years' War, taking over all the English territory still on the Euro, uh, European mainland, and the French, while they're dealing with internal str- uh, strife over the Protestant-Catholic divide, they command the largest population in Europe, they are the second wealthiest kingdom in Europe, they can still put a large army into the field. They could project power into places like Italy, Central Europe, and the Mediterranean. And Corsairs sailing from French harbors had spent decades occasionally raiding coastal English towns. You also have Portugal. They're a major maritime power. By the time of Elizabeth's succession, the Portuguese have trade fleets sailing between the Iberian Peninsula and many new tra- uh, trading posts and colonies, including posts all the way around both the east and west coast of Africa. They have colonies in what are now India and Sri Lanka, even going so far as to establish a post at Macau in southern China. Uh, The Treaty of Tordesillas, issued by a papal bull in 1494, gave Portugal control over vast swathes of what is now Brazil, sharing the so-called New World with Spain along a longitudinal divide. Uh, Now, while we're at it, let's talk about Spain, because Spain is going to be the one nation other than England that is going to be playing the key role in our story.
0: Yeah, it's going to be the kind of contemptuous relationship we have here, particularly in the Caribbean, uh, that that really sets the tone for Mm -hmm. the story here. And uh, we touched on this in uh, the episode. What the heck was it called? Let me go through my show notes. Um, Very crowded and kind of lame. The grim reality yep. of actual pirate ships. Yep. We we discuss how piracy worked, and we do talk about this story a little bit. And what do we have here this. It kind of starts off with the issuing of letters of mark, mm-hmm. which she was a big, big fan of, and and all letter of mark does and still in the Constitution we talk about that one too the yeah. United States Constitution we can still issue letters of mark very excited about this I think Ron
1: Paul used to push for that in like between like 2000 and 2004 oh,
0: I get it though like I absolutely
1: <laughs> get it so yeah in the 16th century Spain is Spain stars on the rise more than any other uh, state at this time they've completed the Reconquista they've reunited all the smaller Spanish kingdoms. And they are the people that are on the forefront of empire building at this time in history. You know, you have they're the ones who funded Christopher Columbus's mission that, quote-unquote, discovered the Americas, they waste no time in establishing colonies and exploring parts of the world unknown to European powers, and they'd use their wealth to project force throughout Europe and the Mediterranean. Now, by the time Elizabeth I takes the throne, Spain controls or has claims over a vast amount of territory, including and not limited to the entire southern third of Italy. They have Sicily, Sardinia they have posts and holdings along almost all the all, all parts of the african coast they control pretty much all parts of the holy roman empire and what is now germany austria and the czech republic that remain catholic they have colonies in florida they control cuba puerto rico the bahamas jamaica the dominican republic haiti the entirety of what is now mexico and central america <clears throat> excuse me they have parts of louisiana california texas new mexico arizona almost all of South America except for Brazil and some of the unexplored parts of southern Argentina and Chile. They have the whole of the Philippines. They have control of islands in Indonesia. They have trading posts set up in uh, India, Taiwan, Burma, Malaysia, Bahrain, the Arab Emirates, Yemen. They've, They've been up the Mississippi River as far as Missouri. They've established forts as far north as British Columbia on the Pacific coast, Virginia on the Atlantic coast, Silver and gold mined in Mexico and South America are being shipped constantly in large well-armed treasure flotas or fleets of galleons across Spain's new empire, allowing for an explosion of military spending. Spain had her sights set with papal backing on the trade rich countries of Flanders and the Netherlands, which are allies to England, and Spanish monarchs since the start of the Reformation have been giving thought to the reconquest and re-Catholicizing of England herself. They are
0: Nobody large and the in Spanish charge. Inquisition again. <laughs> Yeah, but no,
1: if you, look, if you look at a map of the Spanish Empire in 1560, it looks a lot like a map of the British Empire in 1880.
0: They hold almost all the same territory.
1: Yeah, it is literally a worldwide empire. Mm. It's, it's, it's staggering that in about, well, so 1558, 1492, in 56 years, sorry, 66 years, the amount of territory that Spain has gotten control over is staggering. And so what hope does Elizabeth have against a power balance like this? She has one trump card. She has her sailors. England is still home to a thriving maritime trade, and her merchants and fishing fleets have sailed far and wide in search of resources and opportunities. So England's standing navy is very small. It's in very poor repair. And, but the amount of men raised in coastal ports who were willing to accept great risks in the pursuit of riches, they're going to provide the bravery, the resourcefulness, and the arms to make up that shortfall. And they waste no time in making moves to put England on the rebound as soon as Elizabeth takes the throne. So within two months of her coronation, a longtime merchant and occasional pirate named William Winter, who's been nominated as Elizabeth's Master of Naval Ordnance, commissions the Book of Sea Causes, which is a full deal, detailing of every resource that the Royal Navy has at its disposal, not just the tonnage and armaments and manpower of the ships that it has in its Navy, but a list of potential vessels that can be called upon in case of an emergency. So they're already setting the precedent that it's going to be private citizens who are going to be making up the bulk of Britain's naval power. Now, even before Elizabeth's succession in 1554, a group of traders and military adventurers and occasional pirates. Now, I, I, I want to stop and take a second and mention, everyone we're going to mention here was at one point a pirate. I mean, this is what they did. They would go on trade missions... Right. But they would always take the time on these missions to maybe find a vessel to take take the goods. This is how they supplemented their income. You know, this is this is a teacher who bartends during the summer. This right. Is...
0: And these guys were not, uh, at least at this point, issued letters of mark. They no, were they were not. That it's just
1: what they did. They yeah, they were not privateers. They were pirates. Mm-hmm. So they start by they start what's called the Muscovy Company. And they're setting out to find an expedition to find a sea route to China by going around the north of Russia. Good luck with that. Uh, but they end up creating these big trade links with Ivan the Terrible, who's this Russian czar at the time, in Moscow. And nobody else has those trade links. They found their first trade monopoly right as Elizabeth is coming to the throne. Now, to capitalize on this, and in order to increase income from Elizabeth's military forces, another merchant adventurer and occasional pirate... Excuse me, named Anthony Jenkinson in 1560 is sent in to reinforce the trade links with Ivan's kingdom, but he also heads south. He builds up trade deals with the Shah of Persia. He also builds up trade deals with the Ottoman Sultanate and the Barbary states of North Africa, which provide not only a source of income, but it's also a middle finger to England's main rival in Europe at this point, which is the Vatican the Vatican wants to re-Catholicize England but the Vatican has issued a papal ban on trade with all non-Christian nations so you have these Protestant countries that are trying to build trade with these Muslim states as a way of going we're, we're not here to listen to you
0: right yeah we don't have time for your yeah. shit
1: we're <laughs> no we're not on the same team it's like anymore what
0: Sinead Sh- O'Connor did back to was back that, on SNL <laughs> in like 92 what was it, John Paul yeah ripping up the picture of John Paul the second oh god
1: uh
0: whatever <laughs> man people were very unhappy yeah. about that one
1: so the fixed, the 1560s start progressing Yeah,
0: uh, I, I do want to just step one back we keep yeah. saying Barbary pirates have we ever talked about what that actually means
1: uh, so, for it's, those of you who don't know what that means, the Barbary states are this group of kind of small kingdoms along the north coast of Africa. So, and today
0: it's Algeria. Algeria, Tunisia, Libya,
1: Tunisia. And Morocco. Morocco, so yeah. Like some of Morocco. But they, it's, just, it's yeah. just
0: a strip of land at the top of Africa. They were That's, client
1: states of the Ottoman Empire. Mm-hmm. You know, they weren't officially part of the empire, but they paid tribute. They
0: provided troops in times of war. But yeah, We've said that in the past, yeah. but I'm not sure that we ever mentioned what the Barbary States were. It's, just, it's yeah. literally just a strip at the top of Africa.
1: Yeah, they tend to go about 100 miles inland. They tend to stay near the sea coast. <clears throat> so the 1560s progress, and Britain's trade wealth starts increasing, and they actually are starting to get more on the way up. They're on more of a solid financial footing, and they begin to increase their naval readiness. Now, it's during this period that several important innovations in naval tactics are put in place by the English. Now, the first is the popularization of the idea that while expeditions and raids would be funded by the nobility and wealthy merchants, it was not necessary to have a member of said nobility on the ship themselves. This is a common practice throughout the rest of Europe. Oftentimes, a nobleman with no experience in seamanship or naval combat would have command over more experienced sailors and fighters, neutralizing the advantage of the experience of the ship's crew. Just a whole
0: bunch of steed bonnets just walking around. Oh man! Oh, oh man! I didn't even have the. We uh, talked about. We this. did, but I didn't know this. All was right, if it you come back and listen to us
1: talk about Steve, Steve Bonnet, I'm we've sorry, been going. Steve
0: Bonnet, it's your boy
1: Steve. <laughs> there we go. That's more like it. Oh, we're officially one of those podcasts. Anyway, <laughs> so yeah, they they get Son rid of, of.
0: Bitch! I can't believe I, <laughs> I whipped on a joke. We just laughed about it because we're idiots. <laughs>
1: they get rid of that idea. They get rid of the idea of having the nobility on the ship in command. It's putting the trust of command in the hands of the most able. Second, English shipyards and foundries begin a practice of constructing cannons in uniform calibers and placing them on dedicated four-wheel naval carriages that provide a more stable firing platform aboard ships. So before this, cannons of all various weights and calibers could make up the armament of a fighting ship. It's so much so that each cannon that you had would have a small metal ring accompanying it to be passed over cannonballs that you were supposed to sort and figure out which cannonballs belong to which gun.
0: What a terrible idea! Yeah. Like, especially for well, the
1: navy, like it's a pirate. It wasn't even it? so much an idea; it was just kind of what happened like, organically just, 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 as they started yeah, putting just, guns on just, just ships. A practice, like good god. But the English were the first to break this mm-hmm. in the 1560s and 70s. They started saying, "Okay, we're making this fighting ship. We're going to put, let's say, we're going to put 12 cannons on this ship. We're going to make sure that these 12 cannons." are all of the same caliber or we have like six and six so that we know if we're buying cannonball that every cannonball on the ship is going to work for every cannon. And it makes and it makes supplying your your weapons and your ammunition so much easier. And mounting the the gun on board a ship Can you imagine in the heat of battle trying to load a
0: cannonball and the son of a bitch is just too big?
1: Well we're also going to get into the loading of (laughs) cannons in a second here because this is where it gets interesting. So The English were the first to use four-wheeled naval gun carriages. Every other nation up to that point used your standard two-wheeled kind of land carriage. They just had it on board a ship. Now, the problem with that is when you get the two-wheeled carriage, you have to tie it down to the deck of the ship. You don't have the option to let it recoil back into the hull, and then within the hull, you then reload the cannon. You actually have to get men on ropes to climb down the outside of the hull to swab out the barrel and then get the powder and shot down the barrel of the gun. Now, this is a very inefficient way of doing things. What the English do, now that they have their new naval carriages, they are cutting their amount of time it takes to reload a cannon drastically. It's uh, And putting this in place, in addition to the third new practice, which is the habit of regularly drilling gun crews in peacetime in order to prepare them for actual combat, puts the improvements in place so much that English gun crews could often get off two shots a minute from their main guns whereas ships in the Spanish fleet at the time of the Armada still using these old ways with the old style naval carriages and the old methods of reloading maybe get a shot off once an hour. That is
0: absolutely crazy. It's crazy. It is absolutely crazy.
1: It's crazy. And the people that are...
0: You have a dude climbing down the outside of the goddamn boat. Not just a dude. You have six men. You
1: have six men doing it, and they are working their way down the ship from fore to aft, getting every cannon, and that is a process. That is insane. Especially if you've
0: seen the size of these Spanish vessels. The Mm -hmm. Spanish were very much uh, of the frame of mind where bigger is better. Yeah. Size mattered to them. That's going to cost them. Mm-hmm. We're going
1: to talk about that a little bit later. So, and the people that are putting these innovations in place, the people that are making these discoveries, inventing them, are these same guys, these sea dogs, these sailors. So it
0: takes the other navies like a hundred years to figure this shit out.
1: Yeah, yeah. Whereas the English learned real quick. So as Elizabeth's regime I mean, matured, I mean,
0: you got to figure like. It's what 1560. So mm-hmm. boats had only had steering wheels for like 40 years. Yeah, to that point they uh, had the up, big, up to that point tillers.
1: they'd had just the big long tillers on yeah. the back. You know, guns on ships, period, are a century old. Yeah. Um, and the English, it is. It's a it's an exponential curve in terms of their technology, and it's outpacing anybody else.
0: Yeah, and this is where the the ships of the English Navy start to look very much like ships as, as you like if you close your eyes and you think of tall ships now they all start to look like this the
1: designs start to change they start to look less medieval more modern mm-hmm. the ships of the english navy look more like the ships of nelson's fleet of trafalgar than any other nation so as elizabeth's regime matures it becomes more and more clear that spain is going to be a serious problem um, england's allies of flanders and antwerp are in danger of falling to the spanish the state of war doesn't yet exist between England and Spain. And th- this is a cold war between these two nations. But most of the English leadership felt that something had to be done to undermine Spanish strength. Now, in addition to sending money to the Protestant forces fighting the Spanish, Elizabeth's government begins to help raise funds to outfit expeditions led by this new group of pirate adventurers, the Sea Dogs. Now, the Sea Dogs come from a mer- tend to come from the merchant class. They are not noblemen. They tend to come from the coastal ports in Devon Cornwall and the south coast of England. For the most part, they're second sons. They're not set to inherit the family fortune, so they have to go out and they have to make their own destiny. And that makes them bolder and more willing to undertake risk. Most of them start going to sea from a young age, and so they're masters of navigation. And like everyone we're talking about today, they pretty much all supplemented their trade incomes through the occasional capture of a wealthy vessel from a rival nation.
0: And who hasn't done that? I mean,
1: who hasn't done that? Now, the first of these sea dogs to come onto the scene is a guy named John Hawkins. He's the second son of a Plymouth merchant. He made a career in his early years, sailing with captains who were some of the first Englishmen to explore down the West African coast, uh, searching for new sources of trade, and finding one in particular that could generate huge profits at relatively little cost to investors, and that is slaves. Now, in 1562, Hawkins puts together his own small expedition collects funding from one of the London's new merchant adventurer companies, uh, which were collectives of merchants that would fund expeditions of exploration or trade, or they would fund raids meant to capture large sums of treasure and hence get a big return on their investment. Now he sets out in three small ships. He and his men capture a Portuguese slave ship off of Sierra Leone. They take its cargo of 300 human beings, and they sail to Santo Domingo on the island of Hispaniola and sell these people to the Spanish at a healthy profit. Now having caught the attention of the crown for this financial success, Hawkins undertakes another in, uh, another voyage, excuse me, in 1564, that Elizabeth makes a contribution to. She makes a contribution of the 700 ton Kerak, the Jesus of Lubeck, which is a ship from her own Royal Navy. This is putting a royal stamp of approval on this operation. Now, Hawkins spends a year raiding ships and buying slaves on the West African coast, and again, he sells them off to the Spanish colonial holdings in the Caribbean, and he generates an 80% profit for his investors and grants a portion of the cash to the crown in return for the use of a royal ship, and a light bulb goes off in Elizabeth's head. This is another source of income. I make investments in my own people. I make investments in these operations. So now the method we see from Hawkins at this point is the beginning of what becomes known as the triangle trade. You know, you sail from Britain to Africa to acquire slaves, you sell the slaves in the Americas in exchange for cash or trade goods like sugar, cotton or tobacco, and then you return with the cash or goods to Britain to start the whole process over again. The triangle trade continues all the way into the 19th century, forms the basis of, you know, the entire US colonial system under the British. And it plays a major, major role in the continuation of the slave trade in the southern states. So Hawkins' next voyage is going to be his most fateful. He gathers funds, including 4,000 pounds, or about 3 million bucks today, from Elizabeth's own purse, sets out in 1567 with five ships to spend his usual time off the African coast. He captures about 500 slaves, he sails to Santo Domingo, he sails to Venezuela, and finally he ends up in San Juan de Oloa, which is what, uh, in what is now Veracruz, New Mexico, to sell his cargo. He has the misfortune, however, to arrive in San Juan de Aloa at the same time as a large Spanish military force sent to put down a rebellion. And while Hawkins is negotiating the sale, the Spanish set up a surprise attack on the now infamous privateer in revenge for his attacks on Spanish shipping. They know who this guy is. Word's gotten around. Mm-hmm. Now, the Spanish launched their attack, and although the English caused serious damage to the Spanish ships in the harbor, they're eventually overwhelmed by the weight of Spanish numbers and escape with only two of their ships intact. And they managed to limp home with only 80 men out of the original complement of 340. So, this expedition is an utter failure. What it has done, however, is set a precedent for Elizabeth's direct financial support of pirate ventures against the Spanish. And what this does is it sets fire to the aspirations of other adventurers. You know, they're more willing to take these huge risks now that you have the backing of the Queen herself. Now, Hawkins would go on to have a successful career in Britain, becoming a member of Parliament and the treasurer of the Royal Navy. And as rumors of English of royal support ignites efforts to raid Spanish assets, one man in particular decides to seek revenge for the English defeat of, at San Juan de Aloha, mostly because he had been there. He's the son of a Devon merchant who took to sea for the first time at age eight, and by 20, he was commanding his own vessels. Now, he commanded one of the smaller ships of Hawkins' third slave-trading expedition, and he was actually Hawkins' cousin. His name? Francis Drake.
0: Francis Drake is one of my favorite just guys of this era. He's... I love him because... He's a maniac. I mean, he might be the source of a three-parter for us. Yeah, he was crazy. He called himself the dragon.
1: He did. El Draque.
0: Yeah, again, he was like man this guy was a yeah. dick he and he made sure the spanish asshole.
1: knew who he was
0: he made it a point yeah. to let them know what he was doing
1: yeah so fi- uh,
0: kind of like his style yeah so
1: in 1570 drake sets out with two small vessels to raid spanish shipping in the caribbean and he spends a year doing so quite successfully returns a 215 percent profit for his investors which is big time so in two years later he sets out another raiding expedition with a much more significant goal. Instead of raiding ships, he's going to attack Spanish settlements. He's going to raid Spanish ports on the Isthmus of Panama, intending to loot the stocks of silver and gold that have been brought north overland from Peru to be put aboard ship at the port of Nombre de Dios. Now, he sets out with two ships and 75 men. How he's going to plan to take a major port with 75 men, I don't know. And in July 15, uh, 1572... I mean, you
0: fifteen seventy two. think Captain Morgan didn't have that, that many. He more. had 1,500 men. But I mean how many how many were to take the city like I mean, it would have taken quite a few but I mean that was a very it's more than long 75 yeah. But I mean like he didn't initially the plan was not to have 1500 men <laughs>
1: Yeah It's ballsy. So in July 1572 Drake launches a raid on the port and uses the cover of night and the element of surprise and he captures the town and its treasure However, Drake is badly wounded in the raid. And his men are forced to withdraw and leave the treasure. Drake refuses to accept defeat, and he stays in the area for a year, raiding shipping and attempting to capture a treasure shipment. He is not going to give up until he has succeeded. He allies himself with a French buccaneer named Guillaume Le Testu and the local Maroons, which are former African slaves who have escaped the, Fani- uh, the Spanish. Drake finally managed to track down a mule train bringing silver north to Panama. He captures it in a surprise attack, and he gets over twenty tons of silver and gold worth twenty three million dollars in today's money. And it's a huge return on the initial investment for the voyage.
0: I really would have thought it would have been worth a shitload. Of <clears throat> money. Whenever I hear about how much the silvers worth, like it's this giant wagon train full of tons and tons of silvers worth twenty three million dollars. Okay, I so, was so here's blown the, away by. So that. the statistic is a little. Skewed. Here's works.
1: What you have is. to think of is because inflation doesn't keep up with necessarily with cost of living, right? Or cost of operation or infrastructure or anything and it's, like it's that.
0: It's mostly because. So
1: think about how far twenty three million dollars to would go today if we were at if we were living like we were in the 15th Right. And it's
0: it, the thing that got me is it's it's how far it would get it. Mm-hmm. And it it doesn't really have as much to do with. Um, like fluctuating prices yeah. of these metals or and even that works differently to currency. Yeah. But it was like, Man, I, I would have thought that would have got you a little higher on a hog in twenty three million. Even though I mean like twenty three million dollars, nothing to nothing to spend. Well, twenty three million
1: goes a lot farther when you don't have things like electric bills and things like that. Sure. That's the way you need to think of it. So, August 1574, Drake pulls into Plymouth Harbor, having fully made a nuisance of himself to the Spanish crown, and immediately writes a letter to the Spanish king, <laughs> telling him, I was the one who captured that silver train. I am Francis Drake. I live at this address. <laughs> I will be setting sail again at this date. Francis day. Drake Come just get dropped me.
0: the pin on his ass. He, he really did. Drop the pen. Pull up.
1: Pull he did. Up. And he has all this newfound wealth and fame, and he makes a comfortable life for himself. But the whole time, he's planning another expedition. Uh, one that would forever prove the English to be a thorn in the side of Spain. But we're going to step away from Drake for a minute, and we're going to go to a man named Martin Frobisher. Again, merchant, adventurer, privateer. Yes. He begins in 1574. Was
0: Frobisher a pirate? I never found any any like concrete evidence of him. Like, Frobisher, was a, a letter, Frobisher was a a
1: Devon trader. It goes almost without saying. Uh, yeah, was... okay.
0: Yeah, I don't have any. Yeah. I couldn't find anything on Frobisher ever actually taking a prize, but.
1: All of it would have been off the books. Sure. All of it would have been off the books. Yeah, you can usually find you know, shit. You where'd you don't get this stuff that you find t- that
0: written down? It's usually like in a yeah. diary.
1: Where'd you get this stuff that only comes from the Caribbean islands? Hey, it, it, oh, we bought it, it in it the Canary the Islands. Trucks. Yeah. Fell yeah, it's the mobster <laughs> thing of it. Fell off the truck. <laughs> so 1574, Martin Frobisher begins petitioning the Privy Council for permission to undertake an expedition in the name of the Crown to find a passage to the northwest that would lead around the Americas to the Pacific Ocean. All of these exploratory missions are to find trade routes to China. This is the trade golden goose for these guys. Now, he acquires permission, he gets royal financial backing, he gets three small ships, sets out in June 1576, and within a couple months, despite some violent storms and damage to their ships, he finds his way to Baffin Island in the north of Canada. Now, he spends the coming months exploring the interior of Polar Canada, mapping it, trying to seek out a route west to the Pacific. He fails to find it, but he does come upon a black rock with golden flecks in it, which upon his return to London was said by alchemists to contain gold dust. And the cha-ching sound goes off in their heads. Everybody in London is set on fire by this. Now this promising find sets up a much larger second expedition and later a third, which sets about gathering hundreds of tons of this ore, and also several Inuit to take back to London and present to the Queen. And Frobisher soon comes to realize, however, that the ore contains no gold. It's simply iron pyrite, better known as...
0: Fool's gold. Fool's gold. (laughs) Whoops. Now, although the expedition... 800 men died. (laughs) As Uh, all of our stories go. (laughs)
1: yeah. Although the expedition was a failure at acquiring a precious metal source to compete with the Spanish, it does... I, I wanted to talk about it because it does cement in the English this idea that establishing an overseas colony and claiming lands of our own before other powers do is going to be a good idea. The Frobisher Expedition locks that in. And while Frobisher... Is busy exploring Canada. Let's go back to our friend Francis Drake. Now, on December 13, 1577, he sets out on the 100-ton race-built galleon Pelican with 164 men and four other ships, and sets sail south through the Canary Islands and down the West African coast, sails around the tip of southern uh, around the tip of South America, through what's called the Drake Passage now attacking all the Spanish ships that he can along the way. In in September 1578, after a a storm-toss passage through the Strait of Magellan, Drake becomes the first English captain to enter the Pacific Ocean. He sets sail northward along the west coast of South America and begins a campaign attacking the soft underbelly of the Spanish Empire. Now, due to attrition, he's now down to his flagship, which he has renamed the Golden Hind, and he ends up capturing several trade vessels and a ship loaded with 25,000 pesos of Peruvian gold worth $7 million in today's money, which you think would be enough for him to turn around and go home. Not Drake.
0: Not for this guy.
1: Not Drake. Now, he's off I mean, of this Peru. This is also the
0: guy that held these uh, like Spanish forts for ransom. They'd pay in the ransom. Then he'd burn it anyway.
1: That mostly came along later, but we're going to get mm-hmm. to that. Now, he, he's off of Peru and he gains knowledge of a Spanish treasure galleon setting sail westward to Manila, all the way across the Pacific, and he gives chase. Drake eventually catches up with a vessel named the Nuestra Señora de la Concepcion, which we have mentioned before in a previous episode, and it's her nickname that truly stands out. <laughs> the Cacafuego. Which
0: episode had the Cacafuego? In? Uh,
1: it, was the, it was the... Was it, was it the same one? It was the one, one of Pirates and Privateers, because we talked about like, what Oh, a that's right. Huge... Like,
0: Privates, Pi- yeah. yeah. Privates, Pirateers, and, and Buccaneers.
1: Yeah, no. Cacafuego, literally exactly. translated, means... Fire shitter. <laughs> so, in a quick savage attack, Drake and his men captured her, and on board they find a treasure that they can barely believe. They find 80 pounds of gold dust, 26 tons of silver ore... 13 chests of plate, jewels, and precious stones. The total value was over $50 million in today's money. Now, such is the size of the hall that it took them six days just to transfer the loot from the Nuestra Senora to the Golden Hind. Now, Drake continues his journey... And you think, well, now's the time to turn around. Not Drake.
0: Nope.
1: He continues his journey north. He lands in June 1579 in California and claims California for the queen, calling it Nova Albion. And he continues... To follow, he sails all the way up past Washington, up along British Columbia, and there are some people who think he made it as far north as the southern tip of Alaska. Which is, I gotta say, that's pretty impressive.
0: That's so unbelievably The Spanish had
1: barely made it up there, and they had colonies in the region. Right. Now, he continues to follow the winds westward across the Pacific. He raids Spanish ships off of the Philippines. He makes first English contact with the Sultanates of Malacca and Brunei. He makes stops in India, the Arabian Peninsula. He heads down again down the east coast of Africa. And he makes the first show of English presence in all of these places. None of these people had ever really seen English ships before. Now, English ships were buying goods that originated in these regions, but it's this hop of goods from place to place. Drake is finally here. Now, he's showing that the monopoly on trade and power in these regions no longer belongs to the Spanish or the Portuguese. The English are now in on the game. And finally, on the 26th of September, after nearly three years away, the Golden Hind sailed into Plymouth Harbor with the remaining 59 men of the expedition aboard, and Francis Drake became the first Englishman to circumnavigate the globe. It took 25 wagons to transport the treasure of the Nuestra Senora de la Concepción to the Tower of London. Elizabeth's return on her investment was more than the Crown's entire annual income for a full year. The entire British government... And all of the investors made profits of more than 4,700%. Drake becomes fabulously wealthy and was knighted a month later on the deck of his now-famous ship, the Golden Hind, of which, if you were ever in London, you can see a reconstruction of in Southwark. And the 1580s continued on, we have another new face that emerges onto the scene of piracy and colony building, in the form of a man named Walter Raleigh. Now, Walter Raleigh is a lifelong gentleman, privateer, and soldier of fortune, He spent a long time suppressing Catholic rebellions in Ireland. He's been building ties with French Protestants to undermine the Catholic royalty in Europe. He's operating like the 16th century version of, you know, a black ops agent. Yeah, more or less. So in 1584, he decides to change tack. He applies for and is granted a charter by Elizabeth to explore and colonize any area not yet claimed in the New World in return for 20% of any gold or silver mine there. In 1585, after an exploratory expedition to map the area, Raleigh dispatched five ships to Roanoke Island off of what is now North Carolina. The colony, the first to be set up by the English in the New World, encountered a lot of difficulty and it was initially abandoned after being visited by Francis Drake on return from a raid in the Caribbean. And we're going to talk about that raid again in a bit. A second attempt with a larger and more diverse group of colonists is made in 1586, but when Governor John White departed in order to sail back to England and bring back more supplies the next year, war with Spain officially breaks out. Only able to, sur- to arrive three years later, White returned to find that all of the colonists had disappeared, leaving only the letters C-R-O carved into a nearby tree trunk. And since, the settlement has been known as the Lost Colony. Now, they don't know what CRO is supposed to represent? They have theories. A lot of them are kind of spooky. Were they massacred by the native population? Did Were they assimilated into the native population? Did they move to a different island? Did they move further inland? Did they try to shift the location of the colony and end up all dying of disease or what have you? Did they just need some time to,
0: to find themselves? Did they just cut those toxic people out of their lives?
1: Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> Are you saying they they That's they turned Roanoke. a colonization effort into a wellness retreat?
0: <laughs> That's the Millennial Roanoke.
1: You know, did they all did they make their own ships and head down to South America to go take ayahuasca journeys like <laughs> Who knows what happened? So despite its failure, the foundation of the Roanoke colony sets in motion a movement of English colonization that would lead to the establishments of places like Jamestown, Plymouth Bay, the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Bermuda, Barbados. Within 40 years, there are a dozen new colonies that the English have founded in the Caribbean and North America.
0: Many of which actually worked.
1: Yeah. And this,
0: yeah. The, there was a pretty impressive success yeah. rate. It's Roanoke, very, very difficult to get a colony
1: to stick. Well, we in the United States are here because of it. Right. And um, and and yeah, and the foundation of the Roanoke colony is what takes that tiny little snowball at the top of the mountain and just gives it that little push. Mm-hmm. And the rest is just all momentum. Now the outbreak of official war. Oh, you
0: said you had something you wanted to share with me about Walter Raleigh. So the one thing I kept finding in about about Walter Raleigh in uh, what was the name of the book that I used? Um, I, I have a different source than you. At least one of them. I have Elizabethan Sea Dogs, fifteen sixty to sixteen oh five by Angus Constum and Angus McBride. There was a really weird. Is that one of the book? Osprey books? Yes.
1: Big fan of the Osprey books.
0: There was a really weird relationship. They have pictures. Qu- they do have pictures. They're pretty great. Uh, between Queen Elizabeth and Sir Walter Raleigh. Now, Queen mm-hmm. Elizabeth the First is the Virgin Queen. Like, yes. That was- yes,
1: because she refused to marry. Right. Having seen what happened with her, her dad and her mom, who was... Um, uh, uh, what the hell was her name? Anne Boleyn.
0: Anne Boleyn. Yes.
1: Her dad be- cut her mom's head off. Yes. You know.
0: in yeah, and, front, and like She was there. She was present for it. That might drive me to be single. I kind of get it. I kind of get it. You were saying. But they had a really weird relationship. Uh, they spent a lot of time together. You could tell she was clearly infatuated with him. She called him my pirate. Mm-hmm. It was my pirate. Which is a little more than friends. Uh, he ended up marrying her handmaiden. Yeah. And one of the prevailing theories that I've found is that Walter Raleigh and the Queen were an item. Outside of the bedroom, so she lived a, a sex life vicariously through her handmaid, whose uh, name I, it escapes me, but uh, I'll find it. In my was name. it like Cat Ashley or
1: something? No, that was no that everybody's was her, name. That was her me?
0: nanny when she was a kid. Anyway, uh, either way, I, I'll find it. I'll, I'll so. Google it here by the end of it. But that seems a little far fetched. So I decided I'm going to go straight to the source.
1: Okay. So I wrote
0: us a little bit of an email. Yeah. And I sent them to uh, professors of Elizabethan history from Oxford, Cambridge, King College, <laughs> University of Edinburgh, Imperial College, London, London School of Economics and Political Science. Oh boy. Uh, the email reads, thusly dear, blank, and I did realize that I just had it as X's, uh, at least one of the emails I forgot to change the X's to a professor's name, so... Ah. Th- it's probably why nobody has gotten back to me. But this is a living document, and if anybody gets back to me, and I will even check the email before the end of this episode. I'm not asking
1: for done. a name, but can you give me a university?
0: Oh, well, like I said, I sent them to all of them. Yeah, there was like 13. But like once it's once this comes up, I'm going to be very excited. So it's dear professor, so such and such. What up? Oh, great. <laughs> My name is Chris Miller, and I produce a wildly successful American podcast that focuses on the side of history that doesn't always see the light of day.
1: Well, there goes our UK market. Anyway,
0: (laughs) I have selected you because of your renown in your field and striking good looks, both of which make you the ideal candidate to answer a question that I've run into while writing my notes on Queen Elizabeth I and the Sea Dogs. My question, Professor, quite simply, is this. Were Queen Elizabeth and Sir Walter Raleigh doing it? (laughs) <laughs> a prompt reply would be much appreciated as this is a time-sensitive subject. Oh, Regards, no. Chris Miller, producer <laughs> of Thieves, Rogues, Renegade. P.S. You should check out our sweet show at www.soundcloud.com slash trrpod. P.P.S. You oh, no. should consider throwing in a couple of quid at www.patreon.com slash trrpod. These went to Oxford... Cambridge, King's College. So, all the leading
1: universities of the United Kingdom.
0: Yeah. And, and awesome. if I missed any, I'm going to send them again. Because <laughs> until I get a response, until somebody dignifies oh, my. Jesus. Answer. What up? I think it's going to go well. Oh, great. I'm not even going to tell you what the subject line was. <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, oh. and you know what's weird? Nobody has responded to it. Shocking. <laughs> Absolutely shocking. You know shocking. What? Like, It's after finals. And these all went to their university ones. You that, know what I'll do? No, The, I'll UK, find Univers- their no, home the address. UK University
1: <laughs> schedule is different from ours. <laughs> was it was is not say, finals no, week. No, it's not.
0: You so, know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to call them at home. Great. What up? Cheerio.
1: <laughs> I'm the one with family in the UK. Why am I trusting you with this? <laughs> anyway, Because
0: I struck out on my own. <laughs>
1: So much, much like the Sea Dogs or the outbreak of war. <laughs> I'm because, an adventurer, if nothing else. <laughs> because the outbreak of official war between Spain and England meant only one thing for sure. The Sea Dogs are going to kick things into high gear. Now, for some, this meant private expeditions against Spanish threats. We have Thomas Cavendish, a 27-year-old scion of a wealthy Ipswich family who put together a small force of three ships and 120 men, set out in July 1586 on a declared circumnavigation. He said, much like Drake, I'm going to sail my way around the world in order to raid Spanish ships. Now, there's nothing particularly remarkable about his efforts that really stands out. He captures a few Spanish vessels, raids a couple coastal ports, until October 1587, when Cavendish's men spotted and gave chase to one of the famed Manila galleons the most wealthy treasure ships sailing the world at that time. They would sail between Mexico and Asia once a year, bringing a year's worth of trading silver and fine goods. Now, the Spanish ship, the Santa Ana, fought bravely, even though it lacked cannon, but eventually it was forced to strike its colors. Now, taking what he could off of the sinking vessel, Cavendish returned to England with 2 million pesos worth of gold and goods, which is worth 340 Million dollars in today's money. It is the wealthiest individual capture ever made
0: That's by any. Money.
1: Yeah, and the dude was 27. We we're in our 30s. What have we done with our lives?
0: Yeah, I've only captured $240 million yeah. worth of stuff. Now I just look like some kind of goon.
1: Feel like some sort of rank amateur.
0: That's $240 million in their money. So yeah. it was like eight bucks. <laughs>
1: So, at the same time as Cavendish's triumph, dread is beginning to fill England. Talk was heard on of plans for a massive invasion fleet, set to sail from Spain to deposit an unstoppable army on English shores, take the country, and re-Catholicize it. Now, defenses are scrambled to be set up, but one man decides that the best defense was offense. And that man, again, Francis Drake. Now he said he's
0: just a son of a bitch,
1: He's nuts. Now, having just commanded an expedition of 21 ships and 1,800 men, where he systematically raided several major Spanish ports before crossing the Atlantic and destroying the Spanish colonies at Santo Domingo, Cartagena, Colombia, and St. Augustine in Florida after holding them for ransom, as you mentioned before, mm-hmm. he used his influence yeah, at he court. He held them for
0: ransom, and they all paid.
1: And they all paid, and then he burned and them then anyway. He
0: burned them anyway. He started burning them to let them know that he was serious, and they paid him, and he just kept 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 going. Very, very Daenerys Targaryen. It was a spoiler, spoiler alert. Oh, what the hell's the matter with you? <laughs> well, you want to talk about the end of the Avengers? Want to talk about endgame spoilers? Those should be... You know what? If you spoil endgame, you should be thrown off a cliff. Just like Black Widow. Man, I'm got, I am got some
1: <laughs> man, I got some Bible spoilers that are going to make you all lose your freaking minds.
0: Yeah, Game of Thrones spoilers are kind of fair game at this point. Like, it's on TV. Endgame, I think we gave everybody like two, three weeks. Endgame,
1: you'd actually have to go to pay to see. That's the thing. It took me three everybody weeks to see it.
0: HBO. Yeah, you just came into work the other day and saw it. It was, what, yeah. Thursday night?
1: Mm-hmm. So, Drake uses his influence at court to put together a raiding force, and he's going to sail into the teeth of the Spanish defenses and attack the Spanish port of Cadiz, which is the main naval base of the Spanish Navy. And the person who provided ships and funds for the raiding fleet was none other than Queen Elizabeth herself. Four royal galleons were donated to the effort, as were several thousand pounds in funding in return for 50% of any profits from the raid, and more than 20 other armed merchant vessels joined the expedition. April 12, 1587, the English fleet sets out and arrives two weeks later off of Cadiz. Sweeping aside with superior gunnery, a Spanish attempt to drive them off, Drake's ships are soon in among the moored Spanish vessels. They spend an entire day and night just going to work. They destroy 37 Spanish ships, capture another four that are laden with provisions, and they sail away. Fresh off of their success at Cadiz, Drake's ships sail along the entire southern coast of Spain and Portugal, destroying any ships they encounter, raiding ports and fortresses along the way. Finally, as they turn to head home, Drake's fleet stumbled on the Portuguese treasure carap treasure carac Sao Felipe, carrying 80 million in today's money worth of treasure from South America, about forty million of which went directly to Elizabeth's coffers. So while the Spanish were indeed amassing a fleet to invade England, Drake's raid on Cadiz, which cost the Spanish over 100 ships of all kinds, possibly delayed the invasion by as much as a year due to the loss of ships, material, and money. And it is possible that due to the attack on Cadiz and the raids undertaken in this Caribbean, the size and scope of an invasion force had to be significantly downsized. Some academics theorize downsized by as many as 40% fewer soldiers and half the intended number of ships. So, this one action could possibly have won them the war, as we're about to find out. Now, eventually the promised invasion did come. 136 Spanish ships set out under Alfonso Perez de Guzman, Duke of Medina-Sidonia, on May 28, 1588, carrying 8,000 sailors, 18,000 soldiers, and over 2,500 guns, and they're going to pick up 30,000 more soldiers waiting in the Spanish-controlled areas of the Netherlands. Now, this is a huge force meant to force its way through the English Channel like an unstoppable battering ram, Facing them down, however, is an English fleet of similar size, and you have a list of very familiar names. Now, although the English fleet spent, sent to stop the Spanish Armada was under the command of Lord Admiral Charles Howard, squadrons of the fleet were under the command of Francis Drake, Martin Frobisher, John Hawkins, Richard Hackloid, his, uh Richard Hawkins, John Hawkins's son, and a long list of of men who were commanding ships of the Royal Fleet would match very, very well with the list of names given on letters of Mark by the Crown. There is almost a hundred percent overlap on that particular Venn diagram. Now, meeting the Spanish fleet off of the Gravelines in the English Channel, the English commanders took an aggressive stance against the Spanish. They used their superior long-range gunnery and their more maneuverable and smaller galleons to stage repeated hit-and-run attacks. This is wasps stinging a buffalo is what it is. Although this number of ships lost by the Spanish was minimal, they take significant damage to their rigging and steering and they have to withdraw out of range. Now on the night of the 8th of August 1588, the English commanders launched a surprise nighttime attack against the anchored Spanish ships using fire ships, which they had a great name for. They called them hell burners.
0: That is a pretty badass Which isn't? I think is pretty dope. And a fire at sea, yeah, sure. Since everything's already covered in oil. And,
1: yeah. and covered in pitch, covered in tar on mm-hmm. wooden ships filled with gunpowder? Yeah. Not great. No. Now the Armada scatters, and the English fleet is then able to get in amongst them and start picking off a number of ships. And one particular incident had Francis Drake sneaking away from the squadron he commanded in the dead of night to chase a lone Spanish ship so that he alone could claim the prize. Which ended up... Now, this is naval combat in the Age of Sail. And he's still the, doing... the entire tactics like humor
0: to go a-pirating. Well, the
1: in- entire... Yeah, the entire tactics are based around staying in cohesive units, keeping tight, keep mutual support, and he just goes off... He fucks off in the middle of the night going, money, 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 and he succeeds. Yeah, and it works. And that ship happens to be the Galleon Rosario, which is the pay ship for the Armada. It's the one that has all the coins. <laughs> <laughs> Remember how we were talking about how Jean Bart might be the luckiest son of a bitch that ever sailed the seven seas? I,
0: I, didn't we make a, a Francis Drake, Drake comment in there?
1: Drake might be a close second. Yeah,
0: I think we I think we compared the two, if I'm, I'm not mistaken. As every took, like, every ship
1: he took was just loaded down hmm. with cash. Now, the Spanish fleet was never able to penetrate the English naval defenses, and they attempt a flanking maneuver. They attempt to sail around the north of Scotland... But they run into these huge storms, and it ends up ripping the fleet apart, scattering ships, sinking a lot, running them aground. The Spanish Armada ends up losing dozens of ships. Thousands of Spaniards are killed. They never get to pick up the army that's waiting in the Netherlands, and the Spanish Armada is defeated, and England is saved. To this day, the defeat of the Spanish Armada is considered one of the most crucial English military victories in history it's up there with waterloo it's up there with el alamein it's up there with the landings at d-day now having secured her crown and achieved a great victory against her biggest rival elizabeth I did didn't slow down in the least when it came to her activities for which she liked to use her pirates now hawkins and drake's generation they're starting to retire from the game but you have a new rash of young adventurers that come to the forefront of raiding trading and exploring and since and the war with Spain still continues for another fifteen years after the defeat of the Armada. The war with Spain actually outlasts Elizabeth herself. Now a new generation of figures like Robert Dudley Jr., son of her closest of Elizabeth's closest advisor, who it's worth mentioning had ships named The Bear, The Bear's Whelp, and The Earwig. Uh, you have other men like James Lancaster, George Summers, Amius Preston. Until the end of the war, they continue raiding Spanish colonies, attacking Spanish ships, raiding ports in Spain, Portugal, and other Spanish territories, and carrying out missions of exploration all the way up until Elizabeth's death in 1603 and far beyond. And in that, they plant the roots of the British Empire, soon to supplant Spain, France, Portugal, and all others as the world's largest and most powerful. And that's Elizabeth and her pirates.
0: Man, and I, I know we talked about it before, but that was so unbelievably profitable. It if was we get, looking into it before because we talked about how it just it makes nothing but sense
1: mm-hmm.
0: for a person in, in <clears throat> her position at the time to write these letters of mark. So go ahead, harass shipping. It makes sense for every
1: government anywhere,
0: right? It's harass your shipping, and we get a piece of we get a little piece of the pie. So yeah. you know for. Twenty percent, you go ahead, you do your thing, we got your back.
1: But here's what's what separates Elizabeth is that, you know, you have all these powers throughout history using privateers and pirates as part of their strategy in naval warfare, but these guys are almost always a supplement to the main strategy, using either conventional naval forces or a land-based strategy or whatever it might be. These guys are on the fringes, they're doing their best to mess with the enemy in their soft underbelly, in their supply lines. Elizabeth is nobody's using pirates and privateers like elizabeth does as a central part of their military force and as a tool for creating empire for expanding your holdings and it's interesting too because we're talking here we're talking about david fighting goliath so yeah it's just elizabeth's approach to using privateers is so unique that's why I feel we had to talk about this.
0: Oh, absolutely. Nobody
1: approached it the way she did. No. Not, and as a conventional head, and as a conventional and legitimate head of state as well. You know, you you have these rogue states, you know, you have other pirate queens, you know, you have Madame Xi in China, you have Grace O'Malley in Ireland, Mm. but none of them are a legitimate head of state, a recognized head of state. Yeah, I mean, she
0: never, never did any pirating herself.
1: No, but but she funded it directly. She
0: absolutely funded it.
1: Directly. And and there's something about these guys that's interesting. They all have a very mercenary nature just from their backgrounds.
0: Yeah, and she was probably banging at least one of them. Mm,
1: well, yeah. Well, we'll the find uh, you, out. We'll find, we'll out. find <laughs> out if we ever get a response. Well, I, ma- I just mentioned Robert Dudley Jr. Her father, Robert Dudley, was uh, Elizabeth's original um, High Chamberlain or something like that. He was her primary advisor and best friend. And, you know, there is a big, major theory that they were, they were lovers. Mm-hmm. But there's something about their mercenary nature, and then there's this loyalty and devotion to Elizabeth that belies that side of them. Now, I don't know if it's some, it comes from some like deep-seated national loyalty, or some form of some undercurrent of like sexual desire for the Virgin Queen, or or what, or just the fact that she was she was the money that she was helping to pay them. But there's something there is this fanatical loyalty to the English crown. Now, granted, that loyalty gives them the opportunity for significant financial gain, but yeah, it's it's just something weird. It just doesn't quite add up. Yeah, and that's what makes the sea dogs so interesting. Well, and like I said, I mean, we can get into the individual stories of these guys because they're all so interesting, and we will in the future. Mm-hmm. But and
0: Raleigh falls in love with the idea of El Dorado. Yeah, explores the Amazon. Yeah. It's <laughs> he made what three three trips? At least two. He made it.
1: It might have just been two because I think on the second one he
0: died. I, I think it, well, it was the second one. Whenever uh, he has to go back and and pay the piper because they started uh, torching Spanish settlements. Yeah, and then uh, that didn't go. Well. It was under who was James the first? Yeah, King James, Elizabeth's so successor. He was out there commissioning all those Bibles for CD hotel rooms. <laughs> No, that's not that the Gideon Bible that ends up in those. The Gideons are always in those ones. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> by the Gideons, the King James King James Bible. Right? Oh, it us. is the King the James Gideons.
1: Bible, I suppose. Mm.
0: So uh, Raleigh's wife, uh, secretly married to uh, Elizabeth Bess Throckmorton, she Elizabeth was uh, Throckmorton, okay. one of Queen Elizabeth's ladies in waiting. Mm. Uh, Cat Ashley was his aunt. Yeah. Okay, yeah, So he was related to Cat. His, I knew there was a connection. Colonel Aunt Cat, uh, Cat Ashley, uh, governess of Queen Elizabeth the.
1: I knew there was a connection between Raleigh and Cat Ashley. I just couldn't remember what it was. So, uh, yeah, guys, thanks for thanks for listening. Thanks for hearing the story.
0: This is a good one. This is a fascinating yeah. story.
1: It's fascinating. I mean, not not as many yucks as the last
0: time, but you know what? No, doesn't there, always we have, have to be. The fart Patrol. I just I'm glad we got to get you know a full hour of content out of the Portland Sea Dogs. Yeah. Wait a minute. <clears throat> I was talking about baseball. What the hell were you guys talking about?
1: I think you got the wrong sea dogs there, oh, buddy boy. Shit!
0: No wonder my show <laughs> notes are weird.
1: Hold on, cut. Okay, we're gonna go back. We have to record again. <laughs> we'll get it. In, we'll get it in post.
0: We'll fix it later. Yeah.
1: Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Uh, I want to send out a few special thanks, of course, to uh, our friends, the Bloody Seamen, for letting us use their music. Check them out on. Uh, check them out online. Awesome pirate punk. If you uh, like supporting the arts in Pittsburgh, definitely, definitely support these guys. Uh, special thanks to all the high esteemed uh, professors and professors emeriti of the great er, of the greater universities of the United Kingdom. Until they get it, back
0: to me, they can all suck a dick.
1: No, thank you in advance for your <laughs> for your reply. Um, I'm 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 being more tactful here. Somebody, somebody here has to be the voice of fucking reason. What up? <laughs> and I'm starting to think it ain't you. Oh, who ever thought it would have been me? <laughs> Special thanks to the Portland Sea Dogs. Special thanks to the Portland Sea Dogs. Uh, go out and support minor league baseball. Um, I'm wearing
0: a uh, Greensboro Grasshoppers hat yeah. right now.
1: You're, you are, you are on a big minor league baseball. I hat am, here. and
0: that's gonna be my hill to die on. I'll bitch about that in another podcast because that's another <laughs> hour. So,
1: uh, yeah, guys, if. Um, If you like what we do, you think it's worthy of a little bit of financial support so that we can buy all the research materials and slowly improve our recording infrastructure here, you can go to www.patreon.com slash trrpod for as little as a dollar a month. You can support us generating our content. If you want to find us on social media... You can find me Rob on Instagram at meatneck. You can find me on Twitter at meatneck 2. Slowly getting better at that. I've never been a big social media guy, yeah, but I you, am improving. You,
0: you tweeted. You tweeted for the first time in like eight months.
1: Oh yeah, I tweeted about how I think, uh, you, man. how I think Megan and, and Harry, if they have any sense of humor, should name the next royal baby Jughead.
0: Maybe we get the royal baby on. We got Kyle on. That's a good get.
1: <laughs> Kyle's a good get.
0: Kyle's a good get.
1: Kyle's a good get. And Kyle, Kyle will be back. He, he couldn't. He, he wanted to record with us tonight, but he couldn't. Um, he will be... Uh,
0: he wasn't invited. Just just say it. Just say it. He wasn't invited. He will be back at some point.
1: <laughs> <laughs> shut shut up, up, Kyle!
0: Hey! Shut, you'll make me get the hose. <laughs> uh,
1: Kyle's chambered up in the basement, and it's funny. <laughs> Chris, where can they
0: find you? Uh, I'm private on Instagram, so don't even think about looking me up. <laughs> uh, but if you want to find us on Twitter, uh, at PodcastTRR... Uh, On Instagram, at Pod, Find us on Facebook and YouTube. Just search Thieves, Rogues, and Renegades. And uh, drop us a line. Fire us off an email at trrpod at gmail.com, especially if you are a uh, professor of Elizabethan history at Oxford.
1: Yeah, or if you have any episode ideas, things you'd like to hear about, or any feedback for us. Uh, Speaking of episode ideas, I have an idea for the next episode. Yeah, we were talking about this. Um, We were talking about this. HBO is about to release the the movie sequel
0: for uh, Deadwood. Which, yeah, that's, it's probably my favorite HBO show. Of I life. loved, I loved that show. It's, I mean, like, I love The Wire. I like The Sopranos. The Sopranos had kind of a couple rough seasons. Something there something about Deadwood though. But Deadwood I think it's because it was brief. Yeah. and it's just like for me, it's always been like the the Gilligan's Island thing. Mm-hmm. Like Gilligan's Island just kind of ended. Yeah. So like they're still on that island now. <clears> I get to <throat> see what happens.
1: Yeah. So uh, yeah, that movie's coming out. We're super super pumped about it, and we thought, you know what? We're dealing with a lot of very interesting roguish characters in that story, uh, just about all of whom were real. Uh, Let's take a look at one, and let's take a look at probably the most interesting one. So next week... And it's not who you think, if you're a Deadwood fan. It's definitely not who you think.
0: Yeah, no. We're talking about Calamity Jane. Damn right we are. A bullwhacker. Bullwhacker. Calamity Jane. That's That's a fascinating story. Yeah. That's a really good one, and it's super sad. Yeah, it gets it's a, it super gets sad. It gets a little
1: bit of gets to be a little bit of a bummer. We'll do what we can to lighten it up though. No, I We're mean, good it's for that. it's
0: fascinating, but yeah. like it it goes it goes in a very weird direction.
1: Yep. It's worth hearing though. So, yeah, that's going to be what we have to look forward to next time. Uh, thanks again everybody for listening. We'll catch you on the flip side. Be safe out there. Have fun. And as always, hold fast.
0: are sealed the wages of sin the blood is down the cursing